0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here.
1: Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook, and on the line via Skype, making his triumphant return to the dog world, Mr. Forrest Mickey.
2: Hey boys, yeah. Good to see you. Good morning, I think I say.
0: Great to have you on see the show, buddy. Yeah. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to see you guys. So now just over, we're, well, we're just on a month now until you're actually back on the shores in Australia again. We're really looking forward to it. We've got heaps of people very, very excited to have you back again. You took a little break for a while. Yeah, I did. Yeah, good for the soul? Yeah, I was. It was. You want me to tell you about it? Yeah, love it. yeah. <laughs> if, if that's okay. If that's it's okay. called
1: a leading question for us. you got to play along.
0: <laughs> yeah, play my games, how- damn you. <laughs> See how it's going? Yeah, it was
2: good. I think that I just wanted to strike a little bit of a different balance in my life. So I was doing a lot of traveling for the training and doing a lot of my own training myself. Yeah, I just felt a little bit disconnected from a sense of community around me, at least where I didn't feel attached or connected to the place that I was living. So I wanted to dig a little bit in to, uh, the community around me. I wanted to travel less. It was taken away from my own dogs. So that was, that was a realization that I had. And that was a little bit hard on me. And, um, yeah, for about six years, man, I was on the road quite a bit. So I just thought it was a good, ch- good time just to take a step back and reprioritize a bit. Um, my dogs are getting older, so I wanted to get a little bit more concentrated timing with them. Um, I really like who they are. And, uh, yeah, it just felt, felt like a good chance to, to do something a little bit different. So what I did is, I don't know if you guys, I don't know how much you know about this. Anybody that's listening, maybe they wouldn't, but I had this sprinter van, so I kind of built that out a little bit and uh, packed the dogs in. And for about nine months, we just kind of cruised. And I was in Wisconsin at the time, which is in the middle of the United States. So I went over to the West Coast where I have some friends. and There's some really great views and some great great roads to cruise over there. It's some really nice states that have a lot to offer. So I spent about nine months just cruising around with with the three dogs in the van. Yeah, man, that was good. That was really awesome. I had a girl with me for a little bit of that time. She had a dog too, so that was pretty cool. So we had four dogs and two humans living in a and little one sprinter, sprinter van. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, it was uh, it was good. But it was lovely. It was a great experience.
0: We talked we about this of- with Josh last week when he was on the show, and we've talked about it before amongst each other and other people that have been guests on the show as well because. I understand that, and many people who have been in the industry for a while understand that teaching is very taxing. It's great fun, and it's it's something that you feel a great amount of gratitude to people that they enjoy the show and they love coming along. But it really is quite taxing that uh, you come away from it feeling very drained. It's not anyone's fault. Like people don't do the wrong thing. It's not about people being terrible or awful to you. It's just it's very all-consuming, and mm. when you're discussing concepts with people and all conversations that you're having is around your learning theory. It just consumes everything else in your life. It, do, it seems like there's no time for anything else. And you kind of lose touch with everything else that goes on around the world, like your non-dog friends, some of your family. Everybody starts mm. to miss out after a period of time.
2: Mm. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. My sister just had a couple of kids, so um, I like being an uncle, and it was a chance for me to get to know them a little bit. Like I said, spending more time with my dogs, getting to know the people that I actually live live around instead of being on the road and away all the time. So, yeah, it was neat. It was really good for me. It was healthy, and um, I am like Pat had said at the top. I guess I am getting back into dogs a little bit more again. I mean, I'm never not into dogs. We can't help it. I've, I've got them, and I've got people that I'm always you know helping along. Uh, I just didn't want to travel as much, and I was feeling burnt out, like you said, from it. So, just finding a way that I could, yeah, strike a new balance, and then. Reemerge and sort of doesn't feel like a reemergence. It's always I'm always doing something, dogs, but um, to open myself up again in a healthier way to going yeah. out and and doing stuff. So keep it a there's,
1: bit, there's, there's with, it a bit um, more sustainable, right?
2: Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, there's something with you know we we all you guys are dog trainers too, so <clears throat> we want to do things skillfully and. Dog training has always been one of those, those things. And I know that I know how you guys like to train and, and the information that you like and you work hard at it. So it's the same for you. But, um, you know, we want to be skillful in our dog training and, and we also want to be skillful in other areas of life. And I'm just saying skillful like uh, just doing a good job at it, whatever that means, doing a quality job, whether it's being a husband or a um, you know, partner to somebody, a father, a wife, or a woman, a gardener. Just anything that you take on in, in your life, um, I've just always wanted to to do it in a good way and be proud of it and, and to do it skillfully, I'm saying. So I felt like um, the, my world got big really quickly when I started traveling. And you know it was a good thing. It was a blessing. People were responding well and wanted to learn from me. And I was getting invited to a lot of places. And that was great. And before I knew it, um, I just felt pulled in a lot of different directions. And I didn't feel like I was able to be as good as it, at it then uh, when there was so much going on. So I felt like just for me personally, it was good to dial back a little bit and to look a little bit more closely at what I was doing so I could approach it in a way that I felt was, yeah, just a little bit more honest and a little bit more in control, I might even say, mm-hmm. and uh, and skillful. And so the dogs is always something that I felt like training was art and uh, teaching, I felt, is a little bit the same way. And uh, but I wanted to be good at the other things I had going on in life, too, and those were suffering a little bit, so... Yeah, just being a little bit more well-rounded.
1: Nice. Hey, so we're big on origin stories on the show, right? I like Mm. to understand how people came to be where they're at. So we know a little bit about how you're coming back into traveling, giving seminars, but tell – I mean, most people would know. I've heard the five-minute sort of version when you give it seminars. I know you were in the Army but not a dog handler there and was a little bit involved on the peripheries. But tell us a story about how you became – a dog trainer that's traveling the world, teaching other dog trainers to how how you Mm. got to that level.
2: Yeah. Grew up with dogs. So that's, that's kind of the short of it. Had them growing up and was always interested in how to, you know, I always hung out with them. So it wasn't, uh, you know, any intentions behind teaching them certain things. It's like I would wander into the woods with my brother and a dog would be behind us. So they were always just hanging out and that was really comforting and, and nice. So that was just sort of how we, we were in our childhood as we had them around. I always was a bit, interested in, um, like messing around with them and getting them to do certain things. So you'd see a dog do a trick on TV and you'd want to play around with that and see if your own dog could, could mm-hmm. do it. And so you would kind of muddle through that. And sometimes it would work and sometimes it wasn't. When I was in, uh, I was doing my undergraduate in college. I had an associate professor that had a dog. She would talk, she would talk about it quite a bit. And, uh, it was in her, in her lectures that she was doing and, um, was just struggling with some basic stuff. And I knew how to walk a dog on a leash or at least teach him to do that sort of thing. And a few other pieces, so I felt comfortable helping her out with it. So I just mentioned because we were pretty close that I might be able to chip in and uh, give her some help. And so uh, took her dog for like a week, uh, taught it how to walk on a leash, to chill out, to sit, <laughs> to not be an idiot, and then get back. And uh, you know, she gave me she, she gave me a little bit of money for it. Not a better grade uh, in the class I probably the money for,
0: but um, this isn't going to turn into one of those sweaty. Student teacher <laughs> stories. All of a sudden, Miss, is it
2: Mrs. Robinson? <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, man, that was it. That was like the first time I took some money for dog training. So it was always in you know it was always something I enjoyed doing. Uh, my, my buddies in college had dogs, and uh, my friends at home had dogs. So it was always just something that was really natural to have around. When I finished uh, school, I went and worked for a university, and I was a college counselor, and uh, I did that for about four years, and somewhere in there, I started making more time for myself to train dogs on the side. So just in the area that I was living, I noticed that people needed some help. There wasn't many services around. So it was basic stuff. Again, teaching dogs to walk on leashes and recall and just like uh, telling people it's okay to get outside and and do a little bit more with them. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that more than I did working with the students in the college. So I ended up yeah, just pulling back from the other job and doing more dog stuff. And it, it happened really easily. The the more I started doing dogs, the more that people wanted me to help them continue doing it. And so I was able to make enough money and justify kind of going over and doing something like like that.
1: Yeah. Sort of Built the classic story. It was a, a hobby became a jobby became a job. That's, just,
2: that's it, man. Yeah, that is. Is that jobby. how most people are doing it? Is that yeah, how yeah.
1: Fun? Well, I think that's kind of a lot of people's <laughs> progression, right? You start out on the weekends, after hours, and then when you exactly like you just mentioned, you realize, hey, I like this more than my real job, and then you got to yeah. figure out that transition between um, yeah. turning the hobby into a jobby, and then making it the job, and but keeping your passion, keeping it, make it feel like a jobby still, because mm. that's the yeah. reason you're changing
2: over. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think then if you if you really start to like the training, like most of us do, you know, just teaching. And- everyday life skills to a dog which is which is great and it's probably what's most it's what's most needed out there um you start to see that there's these really like specific areas of training you can go into and Mm -hmm. learn some really crafty stuff so if you want to geek out on it at all or really uh, kind of dig in a little bit further you can and there's all sorts of different venues you can do that within our disciplines you can do that and then so probably just like the rest of the the trainers out there too you start to look at more sport specific training and you start to They didn't be interested in the more complex behaviors or stylized things that we're doing right now. So Mm. that for sure was it with me. And I met some really great people that just inspired me along the way too. So I kind of got into it just thinking that, you know, just wanted to train dogs for people or or help them train their own and then uh, found out all the other neat stuff that you can do uh, with it. So kind of got sucked into that and uh, in a good way. So who were they? Who were
0: the people that inspired you early on? Uh, There's a woman
2: named Donna Mady who lives in Wisconsin, which is where I was from. She's where I got my dog Elzer from, and uh, little old lady with some big badass dogs, and uh, yeah, she just happened to be close. So um, a, another friend of mine who's been a huge inspiration, Mike Ellis, connected me with her. Mike and I didn't have much of a friend, uh, relationship then, just because I had asked him about uh, getting a dog from his breeding program. So he sent me over there and uh, spent a couple years hanging out and training with and getting to know her. And at that same time. Yeah, I was getting to know Mike Ellis a little bit more because he was traveling the country at that time doing seminars. And so we were fortunate enough to get him into Wisconsin enough right now. He's, you know, he doesn't travel anymore. He's super busy and everybody comes to him. But Mm -hmm. still, 10 years ago, he was still getting out there, which was pretty cool. Yeah, and he took an interest in me, which was really neat. So uh, even though we lived 2,000 miles away, would take the time to call me to check in to see how the dogs were doing. And uh, we developed kind of a neat friendship that way, which led to me eventually going out and teaching at a school, which is also another great opportunity. There's, um, a couple, just, just recently we were talking about like inspirations and, and dog stuff just, uh, in the last maybe like five or six years, there's been some people that have been inspiring just to influence the direction of, of my training or, or the way that I feel about it, or how I like to train or at least have inspired ideas about it. There's a really neat trainer in, um, Washington which is on the side of the country that I'm on in the US her name is Shade Weitzel I think she's going to be in Australia next year in 2019 so if anybody's listening to this uh, I would keep an eye out for her but she's a really neat forward-thinking lady and has a lot to offer so you guys hear about that or know where she's going to be at I would check her out
1: yeah I haven't heard Shade Weitzel right
2: yeah yeah she's pretty she's tip-top she's cool Um, if you're
1: listening whoever's bringing her out touch base with us
2: yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of your guys, uh, uh Bart Bellin, who, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're all kind of lucky enough to get some eyes on and see, um, what's cool about, uh, him is that he's influenced a lot of, you know, the guys that are influencing, you know, our generation of trainers now. And I know it's not saying Bart's some old guy cause he's, he's not, but you know, he was young and talented and gifted and forward thinking about training at a young age. And, mm-hmm. uh, Started becoming popular, at least for some of the guys in the U.S. to go over to to Europe, they were getting exposed to him and seeing a different thing that they wanted to for themselves. I think had enough, just had enough wisdom to say this is a guy that we want to learn from. So got some great information from him and Bart's, of course. Uh, he's he's a, a big influence in traveling all over now. But um, even twenty years ago, when he wasn't so known, um, the guys that are known right now in the states were learning from him, which is really kind of neat. Yeah. So it's good to see that he's still he's still out and doing it. So. Yeah, there's um there's a guy named Francis Metcalf. I don't know. If, I think he's been out to Australia. Yeah, I've Has heard of he?
0: Francis before. Yeah,
2: yeah, he he does this canine circus in uh in Oakland where he lives, but it's yep. just so much so much more than that. And was really important to um I think bringing a um just like a softer, smarter heart to ring sport work when it first was getting um, getting going in the United States. He was over on the East Coast, and even you know him and Mike Ellis used to be uh pretty tight and would work together. But Fran was really the, like the first guy, I think, to bring, bring some of that good information over and approach it even in a, in a softer, gentler way. And he did it with not Malinois too. He was doing it with all sorts of different types of dogs. So Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, but Fran Metcalf, so if he's ever over there, you guys check
0: him out. I think, you know, Scott McGuinness that's been to a few of the seminars. He's from Adelaide. What does he have, presses? No, nah. He's got uh, huskies. huskies. <laughs> so you've, you've met him a, you've met him a few times. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I know him and Josh have struck up a friendship, but uh, I'm almost certain that Scott and Francis Metcalf have hooked up in some way in regards to like a circus school because Scott's got that persona going on over in his neck of the woods. He's Um, from Adelaide, which is like the bottom states of of Australia next to Victoria, and uh, he's got this whole circus school going on as well. He dresses up as a ringmaster. He's got the top hat and the and the coat and tails and everything like that it's really cool he was he was a former yeah. graphic artist so he does all his own backdrops and he's got like this amazing artistic flair so when you watch him on his instagram or on facebook he puts these little dog shows together where they're doing little tricks and so forth so i think his early work was largely inspired through francis Metcalf's work
2: yeah man i love that and i love that he's a he's a grap- he's a graphic artist and he's doing all his own backdrops for things too like oh yeah right. it's
0: really it's great work i mean when you look at it i always love him he, he manages to dress up really small spaces you know like he's got small rooms but his artistic flair makes it look like it's this massive studio and he's it's just it's amazing what he does and to booty a really lovely guy like he's an awesome dude
1: i think that circus school stuff's really cool because it Kind of gives people permission to have fun with their dogs. Yeah, it's different. Right. So it's like instead of the training being laborious and the dog must do this and the dog must do that. And it's like, hey, mm. like, here's a trick and there's a you know, training good training is good training, no matter what you're actually teaching the dog to do. Like engagement is anything. So if you're teaching the dog to sit pretty or whatever and you're doing a you they work the I think they work the lure into the sort of presentation. So you never really have to bother fading the lure because that's part of your the mm. the pizzazz. Mm. It's, a, it's an audio mm. show, so people can't see me it's doing jazz show. hands <laughs> I'm doing man, But it nice just allows to people to have a lot of fun. I was, like
2: doing my, I was like doing my hair up and everything.
1: <laughs> see how long this shit's getting, boys? I know. I was, <laughs> when, it, when it first fired up, I was like, excuse me, Mr. Is Forrest Mickey around?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think I've only ever been over there with a buzzed hairdo. So, yeah. yeah, folks, they won't recognize me when I come. Yeah, Pat. No, I think that's it, man the showmanship too, is in like the body, the luring and what you're yeah. doing with your body handling and stuff, but
0: you yeah. talked about it before forest, where you said that training is largely an art, and if you can transform that art and that passion into some performance or some sort of show where people have a better relationship with their dogs, I think that's an awesome outcome
2: yeah, for sure i think um i I look at it or i want it I want it to be mostly an art still right there's of course. Good science out there that tells us like why things are working the way they are and and uh, how we can piece together you know certain things to make behavior to make to make behavior look really nice and reliable. Um, so there's science behind it, but for me, I always feel like the, the people that are approaching it artistically and, and have a little bit have that heart for it are the ones that are always going to show the best, do the best, put the most time into it, enjoy the journey, that sort of thing. Yeah, Not if that makes sense, but it's um,
0: it, it makes a lot of sense because I think that if you're too stuck on the science of it. Too stuck right. on the rigidity of it, it it comes out right. through your work, and it doesn't, it doesn't appeal to people. It doesn't have the same appeal. It doesn't mean the same to them as it means to you. And that's mm. fo- it's it's not a problem to be precise and enthusiastic about your training. But if you expect, it's kind of you know I learned about a lot of this in the early days, not just in dog training but just in general, is that things that mean a lot to you may not necessarily mean a lot to other people. So mm. if you if you want to find success in things, especially in an uh, in a, in a art form connected with people, Forrest is just showing a picture of his dog. Showing uh, us the dog. Is that dog Elzer that, that you just showed us? That's Elzer, yeah. So yeah, how old is he now? Think? He's just over eight
2: now. Yeah, right. Um, and then the female's back, back there. Yeah. Who's that? Which one's that one? That's Endy in the back there. Oh, yeah. That's littermate to Elzer. And then that's, that's Amos, the Border Collar. Is that your dog or a family dog? All all three are mine. Yeah. Cool. The border collie is the one that doesn't get at well, I mean, he all he does is run this property. I live on three acres out in this uh this farm area, which is awesome. And
0: he's like a he's a border collie through and through man, but I didn't mean to interrupt you, dude. Just no, that's fine. My, that's that's all good. <laughs>
2: I, just, I, just, I, just, I
0: People have been working get... out for years how to put a sock in my mouth. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> just show him a picture of a dog. <laughs> I think you're right, though. I I, I think the really good, the really good dog trainers I see are like the science has now caught up to what they're doing, and the science is just explaining why what they've been doing for years works.
0: You know, you can implement it together. Yeah, it's it's a successful, it's a symbiotic relationship if you can get the science and the art to Mm. um, collide together.
1: Yeah, but Bart talks about that, like you know, the dopamine jackpot study, Mm. like. He says, oh, that, because I don't like to reward too much. So now I understand why not rewarding too much has been working for the last 40 years. It's not that he Mm. was doing it on purpose. It just was what he was doing. And now he understands why it was working rather Mm. than was Mm. actively trying to implement it.
2: Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's important. That's an important thing to kind of note is that um, we've got more words and to explain what we're doing now. So uh, when we go out and teach, we're able to explain that, I think, to folks in a way that they're able to grasp it better too, which is cool. Because I think um, I bet when I was at first started attending seminars, there's some really, really gifted and talented trainers. A lot of times they struggled to find the words to put to what they were doing. So yeah. was, you walk away and you'd be impressed with their dogmanship and the way that their dogs work, but you didn't always have a way to reproduce that or even understand, you know, uh, how you could do that yourself. Mm-hmm. And so how people are getting really good at breaking down or uh, explaining the small pieces of how they're getting to where they're getting to and it's what it's done, I think is made training more available to people, and not just ones that um, are intuitive and you know, feel comfortable with animals and can kind of think on their feet and but even like the analytical the analytic types I'm not sure how this is going to sound coming out, but I work with some folks that this real analytical and everything kind of had to be, had to be numbered and, and quantified and sort of um you know, put it in an order so they could follow this list and come out with some outcome. And mm-hmm. before training information was as available as is now that was nearly impossible to do. Cause all you had was the time you spent must mess- messing around with your dog, trying to come up with something. And now there's a lot of step-by-step processes that you can go through to, tr- to make behavior. And you know, if you, If you control your environment and the resources and you've got a dog that cares about what you're doing, um, you can get there because the pieces are so clear and you can work on these little small things. It's hard to screw up, but still it's, I think it's the folks that, um, you know, that, that have that feel that are always would come out on top, whether it's competitively or whether it's um, training faster or more expediently or just the final product looking um, artistic or, uh, or beautiful poetic, even something like that. So.
1: At the end of the day, I think you've got to be able to read a dog and see how it's going, and like to really be—that's—that's that's the people that it, you can't learn that. They can just do it, and they can uh, see in their session how the dog's feeling, modify their mm. session, more of this, less of that, whatever it is, because mm. it—you mm. can't—you can't really teach that, I don't think. In there's people, yeah, right. I see some people doing stuff, and I think fuck, I, like I'm so bad compared to them. Like you know, they can read a dog so much better. And get so much better results from the same time frame by modifying their session on the fly. Mm. And here I am, like, no, we're doing six reps. This is what we're doing. <laughs> I <don't>, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't care. This is this is what I've decided is happening, and that's what we're sticking to.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think yes. rigidity has a place in many things dog related. Yes, yeah. it's one of those things. Like you said, it's you go out to do a session, and you've got a game plan, and the dog basically says that's not what's happening today. Mm-hmm. And you've got, to, you've got to be with it to change your mindset to say, okay, well, that didn't go the way I planned. Don't take it so personally. Remain calm and either the session ends there or you have to be flexible in what you're doing.
2: That's right, man. That's life, huh? That's
0: it is. Life. Yeah, pretty much. Hey, so since we've got you on the line,
1: I remember one day we were at lunch and we are talking about how you had just written the rules for Chinese sport they asked you to sort of come up with a a ring sport version specific for them. And I think you'd done one trial and judged it for them at that point. Um, How's that going? Is that still going ahead? you know, where's, where's that at? Yeah.
2: That's, that's been amazing. Um, That's right. So about five years ago when I first went over to China and I did a seminar and the the people that organized it had a plan, they wanted to come up with, um, they actually wanted to bring PSA over there, Mm -hmm. which, which you guys are, I'd like to hear a little bit about how your trial just went and how that's going. Um, but they wanted to bring PSA over. I'm not sure how they got a hold of me because I'm not a PSA guy, but I think I had a friend that was connected over there that said I could come over and do some protection work. So I went over there and did a five-day seminar. I worked, worked a bunch of dogs in a few different disciplines. And then we got together in this roundtable with a bunch of folks and talked about what a sport could look like over there. And I ended up convincing them that they should make their own sport. So instead of bringing PSA over that they could do their own thing, um, and They've got some resources. They've surely got a lot of people that are interested in doing it. They work hard. Uh, all the folks that I've met over there, like once they start, um, they really go for it. So we did – I did write a sport called CPP, stood for Chinese Personal Protection, and it had elements of PSA, Chutzen, ring, even French ring. So as, as far as the exercises and the things that the decoy could do um, and the way that the handling went. That was great. And so it's five years later. I was just there in December – I thought they were bringing me in to judge another trial. So they had called up and said, we wanted to come and you could do a two-day or three-day seminar beforehand, and then we're going to have this competition and you can judge it. And um, just leading up to it, they had, and I think this was smart of them, they actually wanted uh, Chinese decoys and a Chinese judge. So the sport has evolved. Now these Perfect. other folks, they're educated and capable, and I think that's the right thing. So I just, they kind of just asked me during the competition to sort of walk around and show my face as like, the guy that helped to bring the sport there. And maybe that was good for the, mm-hmm. for folks to see. Oh, that's it good. It's, it's good. It's still going ahead. It's, yeah. It's wild. There's, it's really heavily participated in something that they're doing. That's new. That's different from, you know, anything things that we do over here is they have money prizes for uh, cash prizes for the folks that win. So awesome. Um, something like 10,000, the equivalent of 10,000 us dollars is distributed. Wow. between Wow. How how do they
1: facilitate that? Like, where's that money come from sponsorship or, uh, entry fees. Yep, that's
2: entry fees and sponsorship. Yeah. And then there's, um, for the seminar too, they charge, you know, a fee for that. And I think a certain amount of that comes off also the pad that, mm-hmm. uh, that person. So it's really neat. Um, just like we, we see in the States. So the group got really big and then some people had some different ideas. So now it's broken off into two sports. There's CPP and there's one that, is so close to it, but just has a couple of changes that's operating as a different sport right now. Yeah. Um, which is fine, it's okay, but um, yeah, once it got bigger and people started to have some different ideas, now it's kind of broke ways. That's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I man, it's it's really neat over there, and there's a, they're getting good dogs in, they get a lot of dogs from Europe. A lot of Europeans were going over there and teaching, so they had a lot of, Mostly ships and trainers, but they had a lot of good information that was coming over there and a lot of good dogs that were being brokered over there too. So I was pretty impressed with that.
1: Yeah, right. My understanding is people who are into sort of recreational dog training in China are usually pretty wealthy as well, right? So they've got – they're buying really good dogs. They're spending a lot of money in Europe and getting some, some – Yeah, there's been there. a
0: lot of good dogs that have headed over to China. There's most countries in the world who have had good in show and good in working potential. Uh, there's been some very good bloodlines headed over there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was um, – one of the guys that was there this time in December is the owner of Big Roy. Oh, so yeah. We, so
1: that's what I was so. just about to ask.
2: Yeah, man. So we uh, – it's, it's two, two brothers, and they actually ha- – there's actually a boss above them. Right. It's funny, right? That's what you call it, right? The boss. So yeah. there's the boss with the money, gives the money to the guys. They go procure the dogs. They hire some other guys that are talented in the training to go do all the training work. So, the, the trainer shows up to the competition. He's got six people behind him. One's the boss, the other ones are the underbosses. They're all standing there, all <laughs> proud about the dog. And yeah, man, it's kind of, it feels like very maf- mafioso a little bit. But <laughs> did, that, did you work Big Roy? Big Roy I didn't do any bite work with. No, yeah, didn't right. do any work. With, so. That's
1: kind of a dream of mine to be able to do that. Just for anyone that's listening and doesn't know, like Big Roy is, uh, I think it was 2011 or 12 KNPV Championship winner
2: yeah, uh, yeah.
1: and is so like full points 440 trained by Hans Pegg was sold to China for an obscene amount of money and is a freak like he he's almost like a Great Dane size Malinois yeah. right
2: yeah 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 so he's living the he's living the, the good life man like uh, people can go over and will take tons of money for him to be bred to their female and then it's a thing now for young decoys to go to that kennel where these two brothers have big Roy and to take bites from them like yeah, that's yeah. part of the they want to put on their WeChat, you know, as you get big bites from Big Roy, you yeah. put that on your WeChat.
1: Man, so. I'm guilty of that. I want to do that. I want to get a bite from him. Just, yeah, just sure. to say that you have, like, yeah, he, yeah for sure. I'll put it on our Facebook page. We have. I'll make an album for it, but there's a, a fi- uh, sort of photo of him in a transport or rear guard, and it, it, he looks like a Velociraptor, like, compared yeah. to the decoy, like, he's that big. And I think yeah. to be a KMPV decoy, you have to be six foot tall at a minimum, so, like, you
2: Man, Just yeah, to give some scale up. to the guy,
1: right? <laughs> like, yeah. he's, a, he's a monster. Anyway, I'll put that yeah. up. Everyone can check that out on Facebook. But yeah, that's kind of been a dream of mine. I remember I came up in my Facebook once that Nick Meir had been there and had worked Big Roy. And I was like, oh, yeah. man. Because I worked a yeah. daughter of his in the States and really nice dog, but not a giant, like, not a, not a giant, yeah. like, velociraptor yeah. sized dog. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah, man, segue. That's a my dream.
2: Getting great dogs. Surely getting good dogs over there. So, yeah. Um, what they are learning now is the, um, you know, fat, the training young dogs up. So they're procuring – what I've seen is procuring a lot of dogs that come over uh, trained and good. And so there's, there's a maintenance thing that they have to do to mm-hmm. keep the dogs with fat. And so they're probably a little better at that at this point is maintaining dogs. So that's the information that they've probably had the most exposure to um, is taking a dog with some training and, and kind of keeping it there. Um, but, of course, now that they've been breeding more over the last – 10, 15 years, they're getting better at raising dogs and putting good foundation on them. Yeah, that's select- development. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That's mm. good to hear. So something I want to talk to you about as well, when we had Tyler Mudo on, he told us some books that he thought people should read. And I actually, in my like sort of dog training notebook, I have like at the back, whenever people are giving their seminars, I flick to the back and write down the books that they recommended and a lot of the ones in my notebook came from you so what are you reading Mm. currently on so tell me first thing what do you think is the your dog training Bible if you could only read one book on dog training which one would you do which one would it be
2: yeah and then
1: are you reading anything at the moment
2: yeah I just finished a book called the story of Edgar Sawtell," and uh, it's not it's a a fiction book and it's the um, it's about a kid who's Dad's got this breeding program, and these dogs are kind of, they've got like a, a bit of a magical undertone to them or something. There's something about them that's mm-hmm. a bit out of this world. And um, his father dies. His mom marries the, his uncle, so the father's brother. The kid ends up leaving the home with the dogs, goes on this epic sort of journey um, with his dogs. They're an important part of him surviving and having the experience that he has. Comes home ends up coming to head with the uncle, kicks the, kicks the uncle out, and then all is well in the end is kind of how it goes. But um, what's the uh, – the, it's, it's based off – it's like a modern interpretation of a Shakespeare um, book. So what's the one with a Hamlet? So it's yeah, a modern yeah. interpretation of Hamlet where king dies, the uncle comes in, mm-hmm. the prince ends up like um, facing off with him. So anyway, the story of Edgar, Edgar Sawtell. there's two books. One you're going to know and I – Bart Bellen is the one that told me about it, and it was um, The Talent Code. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I liked that book is because it's, kind of, it's it has an expository uh, layout to it, meaning that it's grabbing good information that's out there, good scientific, scientific peer-reviewed information about how our brains work and how we process things and how we best learn. And so that's grouped together and put into the book in a way that I think is really accessible to people. Yeah. But more is right. that after I finished that book, I was really inspired to, to, to be like, you know what, I could do more. So it's not just um talent like having talent a lot of like a lot of folks tell me like oh you're you're a talented dog guy, you've got a good talent for it and um I say yeah m- m- maybe, but I've also worked really hard at it yeah. and I think the more, that's I, like the I think, that's,
0: better the, better I think that's the missing spice that people keep forgetting about is you know that's one of the what's one of the main ingredients in being great is it's one thing to know the information, it's another thing to actually get off your ass, get out on right. the field, take the hits take the good days, take the bad days and just keep rolling with the punches because there's, I mean, you know, there's often a lot of trainers I watch on YouTube clips and I know that they're actually just getting out there, you know, like they're setting up little rooms in their house or their garage or they're driving down to the fields, they're making things happen and that's one very, very important aspect. Like if you're if you're trying to hit that journey of greatness, you actually got to start being very proactive about moving and getting up.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's it. And so that's, that's a big part of it. And that book, I think was a real call to action. And it, it, for me, it inspired me to just want to do more. So, yeah. uh, I thought that was a really good one. Of course. Um, if you want just like the footnotes on all the, the, the good, um, like terminology behind dog training and the different methods for using it, that the book accelerated learning by Pamela, is, I've got it right here. Pamela, Ray. Pamela, Ray. Pamela. Ray. Yeah. <laughs> that one is, um, like if, if somebody was ready for it and they go, I want to learn a little bit more about the terminology and how this stuff works, I give them that book. And I say, this is like a pocket manual for mm-hmm. what, you know, if you want to have more command of what's going on in dog training or hold your own in a conversation with people, I think that you should know this stuff. So Tyler and I have talked about the book, If Bones rain from the Sky or Fell from the Sky, where I've got it right here. It's by Susan Clothier. Bones would rain from the sky. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I'm sure that he mentioned that as well. But Susan Clothier does a nice job um, in that book. Reading, uh, Jordan B. Peterson's The Twelve Rules of Life right now. Uh-huh. I know
0: you've been speaking to Brent for sure, if you're reading yeah. that book. Is he,
2: that Is he on to that?
0: Oh, big time. Yeah. That's he's that like his go-to book spoken. right now.
2: <laughs> I haven't spoken to him about it. I just caught some podcasts with him. and uh, he's a, Jordan B. Peterson's a neat dude. And I just like what he says. And I'm not too into self-help books or anything, but it's beyond that. It's,
0: it's, yeah, yeah. it's better. It is, that cool. that guy's got a, I think he really sat down and worked out the predicament that we're currently in and the way that the world is shifting into these left and right movements and he's basically calling bullshit on it. He's just saying that as a human race, we, we need to be smarter about the way we're behaving with each other and.
1: I just read that and I think it's one of the best books I've ever read as well. You have to, if you're not religious, you have to sort of get through some parts of it that you might, might be a bit thick reading. Mm-hmm. But I think that – Is he religious? Yeah, in, a, in an odd way. So the Jordan Peterson is – there's a lot of ancient wisdom in biblical texts, and, and he breaks them down a lot and, and breaks them down into what people really meant by this stuff rather than the specifics of it. And so he is religious but not in a traditional sense, in a bizarre kind of way. But, well, it's um, kind of
2: Joseph Camp, like a Joseph Campbell type, right? So Joseph, he's like he's, – the next Joseph, in a way, you can tell he's heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell and the work that he did. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Campbell was taking all, you know, what he did is looked at religion and said, "What are the underlying stories that have actually been around for much longer than these religions have that have yeah. kind of fueled the reason behind this stuff?" So, yeah. Who's
0: indeed. Joseph Campbell? For those who don't know,
2: uh, he was, well, hes passed now. He died in the '80s, but he was a just a really great thinker. And what he was interested in is myth. So he wrote a couple of books, one's the power of myth and the other is a man of a thousand, a thousand masks. And he's basically saying that all religions and the stories that have such good moral sounding within them and sort of guide us through how we should experience this world and and how, what it means to live a quality life. um, Those stories have been handed down from us from ancient uh, cultures or from our ancestors 40,000, 80,000 years ago when they were still being told from people, people, and the religions have really like been influenced by these stories and made them their own and sort of crafted them in a way that serves their religion. But it's all the same thing and it comes from the same place. Yeah. And it talks about this hero journey. So what it what it takes to kind of tra- to go from being a child to an adolescent to an adult or whatever that path kind of um, is to make it meaningful. Yeah. And that was a sum- summarization, but.
1: Yeah, and the idea is there's really only a dozen or two stories that are just being told over and over and over in a different format and fashion by every religion. But when I was reading 12 Rules for Life, I kind of, after a little bit into it, I was like, oh, man, this is actually, there, there's the book Forrest is holding up. Um,
0: oh, I was going to say, there you go, Glenn. Ah, Joseph Campbell.
1: All in the Facebook yeah, Joseph Post Bill. a list of this. The stuff. hero
0: with a thousand faces. Oh, I, 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 actually, Tyler Muto actually
1: sent me this book. So There you go. Tyler's influence uh, us all uh, over. Uh, the place. Doing it. Okay, you're you've doing obviously,
0: you guys have obviously read some good books, but have you read Uncle Boom La, La Uncle and Boom his La La. seven dogs?
1: <laughs> <laughs> when we interviewed Bart, that he said nope. that was one of the
0: <laughs> that was his <laughs> that was his initiation book into dog training. Yeah, Uncle Boom La, La and his seven dogs.
1: And, and we thought he was taking a piss, and then Glenn actually found the book. He actually um, found it online. <laughs> Uncle Boom La. La.
0: But yeah, so when I was reading 12 Rules for
1: Life, you know, you start out reading it and you sort of go, oh shit, this is 12 Rules for Dog Training. Like there's, yeah. it, it applies in every way. And I have I read bit, it
0: and I'm inspired to oh, now. Oh
1: mate, you got to. Yeah, um, I'm, I've and then, listened to podcasts but I haven't read the book. You got to read the book. He, he then, then it goes a little bit deeper and I'm like, oh, this is 12 Rules for uh, Parenting. And then- yeah. I'd pick something up and I'd be like, oh, this is 12 rules for business relationships. And then I realized, no, it's 12 rules for life. <laughs> it applies,
0: yeah. Which it applies is what he said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it
1: applies to everything. I mean, that,
2: what's that chapter on like, don't let your, your kid do something. That he's going to make you dislike him. Yeah, yeah. And man, that was, that's dog training right there. 100 so he, I mean, he does a really nice job of kind of summarizing why. Punishment could be good. Positive punishment could be good. It's the application of things that might make somebody anxious or uncomfortable yeah. and how you can really, great learning is is earned through those. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I exactly. like the way you talked about some things and I circled some some things because I thought that it was good if you're ever talking to somebody that um, you're trying to have a conversation about these things and in dog training, sometimes it's it's tricky. Yeah, He does a nice job of laying that stuff out.
1: We spoke about it on, I think it was maybe <laughs> even last time when we we're talking to Josh that in that same chapter about parenting, it says like, if you have rules, they must be enforced, but don't spend all day enforcing rules. So don't have many. And like that, I apply to my dog so much. Like my dog is either on his time or on my time. You're either doing what I say. And if I tell you to do it, you must do it. I'll reinforce you in some way. I'll either reward you for doing it or I'll compel you into doing it or both. Mm. I guarantee Mm. if I ask it, it's happening. Mm, But that mm. comes with the responsibility of not asking it very often and not asking it unless you're in a position to do those things. So like a lot of my, a lot of the time my dog looks like I have no control over him and I I could ask him to do stuff. I could give him, but why? Like I don't need to, I don't need to show off what he can do. Like there's a time when we do that in the trial field, whatever, when we're training, but he's, then he's on my time and he does what I say, but the rest of the time he's on his time and he does whatever he wants. And And my kid's the same. That was really powerful. Like I think in that book is the key takeaway. Certainly in that, I think it's a fourth chapter. Mm. Certainly that is important in that. I think like if you have rules, they must be enforced, but don't spend all day enforcing rules. So don't have many rules.
0: That reminds me of an old quote was part of our handbook in Australian dog training back in the day which was never give your dog a command until you're in a position to enforce it. Yeah. And it was part of the Bible of learning or yeah. initial learning that we used to preach to customers all the time because people would be yelling commands to their dogs flat out, nonstop, and no results were happening. And as a fact of that, unlearning was, ha- was yeah. taking place.
1: So I, my I, I'd say almost the exact same thing. I just say unless you can reinforce it. And by reinforce it, I mean reward if it goes well, like a positive reinforcer. Or if that if it's not going to happen, you can negatively reinforce the dog into doing it. And then you can still positively reinforce afterwards. So I say you must be able
2: to reinforce every behavior you ask for. Just to wrap, the Controlled Unleashed is by Leslie McDevitt. If you guys haven't read that, it's a, it's a good book. What's that one? Shaping Success. Control, control Unleashed. Okay, cool. I haven't read that. And – um yeah, by Leslie McDevitt. A lot of the, you know, the, the hands off or the having your dog be naked, controlling your environment, controlling access to resources, approximating behaviors um, that which empowers the dog because they feel like they're in control of things, mm-hmm. doing less and the dog to do more. That's a lot of the underlying theme in that book. So things that we know, but it's cool to see it put into words. And she's got some nice um, suggestions for things that you can do. Uh, and then Shaping Success by Susan Garrett is. Um, is a nice – is a really well-laid-out book, and I think folks should read it if they're looking to um, – if they feel a little bit bogged down by their training and they're looking for some different ideas about how to freshen their stuff up. So it's been around for a long time, so it's Leslie's book, but yeah, good resources. And then East of Eden by John Steinbeck, my favorite book of all time. You should read that one, just because.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we need to yeah, – if I only could up, screen capture that screen right face. That yeah, is, I know. That, that just because <laughs> –
2: Oh, listen, man. guys. Everybody, gather around. Listen. He used to be in Steinbeck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. All right. I that's stopped, good. Know, are you guys
2: read? Do you read a Are you always reading a dog book or or, or not? Nah,
1: not really. I listen like because I'm in the car heaps. I'm listening to stuff all the time. So I will do a lot of audio books and that sort of thing. If it's, it, yeah. I just don't get heaps of time. I try to read before I go to bed, and it, you know, that's I got a kid, and so that's like ten minutes at best per day. Yeah. So. Okay. It takes there was a, period, a year to
2: get through a book. A period of time I was reading a lot of uh, – oh, sorry, Pat. I cut you off. There.
1: You're all right now. go ahead. I
2: was going to say a period of time I read a lot of dog books. And I was like, what the – they're all fucking the same a little bit. You know, <laughs> well, that's not true. They're, they can be wildly different, but you just, you've just you got to take in different literature. So I haven't read anything dog-related in a few years really um, and have kind of you know just gained a lot. It's actually, it was the books that Glenn recommended to me by Stephen R. Lindsay, that three-pack that is mm-hmm. just – dauntingly, ridiculously awesome, but still, like, would take some stamina to get through. Mm -hmm. And I've been pulling through that stuff, I think, since Glenn recommended them when I first met him. And uh, I don't know if I've seen more than 50 pages in each one of those books.
0: Those books are – I mean, even though there's a story in it, especially in Volume 1, they're they're brilliant books as reference material because what Stephen did is he basically accessed everybody who is – a practitioner or a theoretical genius and he put it into a manual. So it's predominantly I refer to it as Gray's Anatomy. That's what I'm thinking. It's it's yeah. like it's like Gray's Anatomy was to doctors as Stephen Lindsay's books are to, to theoretical trainers or practitioners who are really enthusiastic about knowing the complete science behind dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can read those books. And everything you wanted to know about the science of learning is in Stephen Lindsay's books. Mm-hmm. I mean, he—that guy—is he has suffered for his art. I'm telling you now because you can't write books like that and not be a, a genius. Mm-hmm. And he is—he's he's predominantly a genius. We met Steve. He came out here. He did a, a seminar for the NDTF Gala, I guess you would call it, at, at one stage in Sydney. And yeah, Steve is just a very, very, very deep guy. He's—he's he's very learned.
2: That story, yeah.
0: Yeah, just an amazing guy. Like, he was involved in the Superdog program. He's been involved in quite a lot of things, but he's, I mean, anything that's research-related, he is just painstakingly pulling apart to understand the absolute atomic level of what he's actually reading. It's quite amazing when I got to meet Tyler Mudo when he was out here that Tyler is not dissimilar in his theoretical approach to things. Tyler is actually... Incredibly intelligent, incredibly researched, and that guy reads just about everything that's coming out. He's he's got an amazing mind on him as well.
2: Mm, agreed. Yeah, this is the book that I'm digging into next. It's called "Behave" by yeah. Robert Sapolsky.
0: Yeah. Oh, nice.
2: So, um, and he's the guy. If you the YouTube video on the science of jackpoting or science of dopamine, he's <clears throat> he set up the experiment with a light bulb going on and monkeys pulling levers and yeah yeah sort of kind of undercovering what was going on there same guy so he's authored this book and it's just recently out so it's called behave the biology of humans at our best and worst have
0: you started it yet or are you just is it on yeah. your yeah it's the next one up so
1: yeah i want to get keep into you that as well yeah he um he, he did all that study into toxoplasmosis as well which is fucking terrifying have you, have yeah you we know about that? it
0: through working with animals
1: have you seen that forest
0: Mm I haven't. Mm-mm. Uh I don't want to so butcher stuff. it too
1: badly, but the, the gist of it is it's a bacteria that um uh can only breed in the stomach of a cat and so
0: when they scratch you, it will bite you.
1: Yeah. So it basically it's a bacteria that works its way back into the stomach of a cat to breed and then gets shit out by the cat and then has to figure out a way to get back in. And so it's um basically it can control rodents so long story short is that a rat is like you could breed rats in a lab isolated for a thousand generations and they get still going to be terrified of cat piss like it's hardwired into them they know to stay away from cats when they're infected with toxo they uh become actually sexually attracted to cat piss so they actually seek out cats in order to be devoured by the cat there's it's really, really dangerous to pregnant. That's wild, yeah. Yeah, it's right. really dangerous to pregnant women, and it's in basically in cat shit. So, but then there, there's all this study now that uh, they think that maybe probably fifty percent of people have at some time been infected with it, and it increases risk taking behavior. So, like in primates, they did tests, and this is all like uh, Sapolsky did all this study. So in primates, they they inve- infected, infected them with them and they lost the inhibition of like leopards. They're no longer scared of leopards, but they are still scared of snakes. So like normal natural predators, but so it actually like stops you being scared of cats, but they reckon in, That's crazy. yeah. So then in like, you know, adult males, 18 to 35, you get infected with this. It just makes you crazily like, and so um, organ donors are often motorbike accidents, right? So they mm. start testing these guys killing themselves on motorbikes and they're usually infected with toxo. So they're out doing stupid shit, popping wheelies on their motorbike and, you know, hit the wall. And perhaps they were not going to do that if and of themselves. And I'm probably butchering it. Someone can correct us if I'm getting anything wrong, but the gist of it is it's a bacteria. One of, you know, there's billions and billions of bacteria, right? This is one that we know a fair bit about and we know for sure that it affects behavior. Like in, in, in one way or another, it makes you do things that you wouldn't do if you were not infected with it, which I think is terrifying because there's billions of bacteria. And this is just one that we know a lot about. Um, wild,
2: and, wild dude.
1: Yeah. And this is what we're, when Glenn's wife was on, we're talking about diet and uh, in dogs and that sort of thing. And how important like uh, getting like healthy gut bacteria and all that sort of shit is for health and behavior that just fixing diet can sometimes totally get rid of a, a, a problem just mm. because the, the the organism's working correctly or you don't have these influences by bacteria that are doing shit that you don't want done. It's, it's terrifying. Mm. It, anyway, that's, a, that's another Sapolsky. Um, that's one of the things that he was heavily involved in the research of. Wow. Wow. Mm. It's terrifying, man. Like,
0: <laughs> I, Hopefully, uh, uh, I'm not infected with toxoplexin. We
1: probably have been at some point. They reckon 50% of us have at some point. Maybe that's why I'm an idiot it.
0: and I go but it can't breed. popping wheelies on my motorbike. Yeah, my well, mates. it could be, right? But it can't breed within are you. you. Getting,
2: uh, are you getting good bike time in England?
0: No, unfortunately. Uh, well, actually, the, this coming weekend, I've got a, a three-day ride coming up, which I'm really pumped about because I don't get – I seem to be more busier and busier – in the business than what i ever used to be there's always something more there's ndtf or seminars or something that's preventing me from going so yeah when i do get to go i'm really sort of excited about it because it just gives me a breakaway and it's i explained Mm. it to somebody the other day i won't spend too much time on it but i explained to somebody the other day that motorcycle riding for me is like meditation because i don't Mm. have to think too much about everything else that's going on all the time because when i'm out there i'm actually I mean, when you're when you're riding, you're not only are you enjoying the ride, but you're also concentrating on not killing yourself. So <laughs> unless um, you've got toxo, <laughs> unless you've got toxo, but um, it's it's awesome. But you know, you've got to have your wits about. It. You've got to make sure that, especially in some of the areas that we're going out, that kangaroos don't come flying out of the side of the the road and and take you off or. I mean, it could be a wombat or something like that—one of the um, Australian native wildlife that we're desperately trying not to yeah. run over while we're out there. So, Touchwood—that doesn't happen this weekend, but it's uh, yeah, it's good. It just gives you a breather. It gives you, like you know, pretty much your hiatus that you've taken for a while to mm. centre yourself. I do the same with my riding. I do it to because I live at a kennel. I'm around dogs all the time. I'm speaking mm. to dog people about dog behaviours pretty much mm. every single day, that it's just nice mm. to, to be with people who don't want to talk about dogs, who want to talk about riding or just drinking a couple of beers and having a chat and just in, enjoying a different variation of life. It's important.
2: I love that, man. I love that.
1: So when you're, you're on your way out here pretty soon, this would be – how many times have you been here, like six or seven times? I
2: think this will be the sixth. Six sixth time. Sixth time,
1: yeah. What, what is possibly left for Forrest Mickey to do in Australia? <laughs> I don't I have no idea. Uh, you mean in terms of like, yeah, just in your leisure time? Or, uh, in your leisure time. Fun stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, you got any plans? Uh, no, well, so I always like seeing uh, you guys, so that'll be good. I'll be in a few days early, so um I'm looking forward to spending time. I think I'll be hanging out at Glenn's place or mm-hmm. with the crew over there. Mm-hmm. Um, I might do. A little bit of protection work with a few folks before the seminar. There's some Mondio Ring. There's a Mondio Ring club that's over there, and there's a Mm -hmm. couple of people that are prepping for a trial that are (laughs) friends of mine. So I've considered that. I think I'm going to go hang out with Brentos and Cat afterwards for a few days in Melbourne. So after the seminar's over, I might head uh, Mm -hmm. head southwest a little and hang out with those with those cats. Or is that northeast? Yeah, no, south. (laughs) Yeah, south. Yeah, (laughs) southwest. I was thinking about. I'm looking at it upside down. (laughs) I like, uh, you know, just like they're your friends or my friends too. And it's always nice to kind of check out a place outside of Sydney. So, yeah, but really, um, yeah, you know, Australia has been such a neat place for me to go. I've been well cared for, uh, you know, the times that I've been over there and the people, you guys are always just really receptive to the training and uh, such great students. Tumbling too. You know, there's a lot of good information that's coming over there and a lot of uh, worthy people that are, that are, that you guys are getting access to. So just to be able to to kind of still be a part of that is pretty special for me. And to be able to travel, I mean, you know, I know at the top of this conversation we were talking about that um I took a step back from traveling and just needed to strike a little bit of a a different balance a better balance in my life. And um but it's been a real gift, you know, that I've been able to go all over the world and and make money doing that and share something that I really love. Um so to be able to speak to people on that and put my hands on dogs all over the world and experience different cultures and and uh I mean it's been incredible. So um I hope I didn't make it sound like it was a drag or it was a bad thing, because it wasn't it was No, just I don't time think to, that's to ever
0: of, I don't think that's ever come across in any of the time you've been here. I I I actually I see your your interpretation of training rubbing off onto a lot of people while they've been over here and they're actually better trainers and better handlers because of it and that's the great thing about when we do have uh, guests over from other countries when they're teaching is that they have an interpretation of training something that they've collated and learned from a lot of their mentors and books they've read and seminars they've attended personally that they've got a an art form that they've been able to introduce to people much like yourself like you've got this really nice motivational and inspiring way of of training you've you've developed your own art you've become which i think is very important after a period of time that you become your own person and you developed your own name your own person because you became very passionate and learned about it and you can see like i said you can see that interpreting well with students that you've worked with and and some of the uh the flair that they've developed in their dogs especially in people who have gone off to do competitive work. It's really, really nice to see. So that's the side of it I always enjoy.
2: I appreciate that, Glenn. Yeah, it's nice to hear. Um, What's going on with PSA over there? What are you guys doing? Well, we
1: just had our second trial ever uh, a few weeks ago. We did a whole big spiel about it, but me, Glenn, and one girl, Jay, got our level one. I got super lucky. So I still need to do a lot of uh, foundation work. Like (laughs) I need to in my training i still need to look at trying to pass a level one despite that we have because i got lucky and i just my dog's still very young so that's um what i'm kind of working on at the moment just sort of building some big entries and grip work and that sort of thing our obedience is pretty good now we're working up level two so pretty soon yeah like when we're ready and i think we're a fair way off we'll be starting to get some people trialing in the twos there's three of us that can 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 start that um Which I don't know how familiar you are with PSA, but in the level two is like all the obedience is done in the presence of two decoys. Mm. Um, right. and there's a retrieve from with it between two decoys and jumps and tunnels and and it's an unknown sequence and you know all those kind of things. So so it's a big step from that level one to level two is a big step and and we all have a lot of work to do in that and the sport's growing. Got a few clubs starting up. So a couple more have just started and a couple more sort of people trying to get training groups together. Which is good it's sort of taking off it's the perfect sport for us in Australia because it's just set up and, and supported in a really easy fashion like it, it's designed to be competed in you know what i mean there, there's minimum barriers to entry um, mm. so yeah, we're having a good time doing it
0: and the great thing about it too, and that, well another good thing about it too is that Jerry Bradshaw is not a overlord in PSA like he doesn't stand over people and
1: yeah, PSA is small government.
0: Yeah, which, which, which is nice. It's really yeah. it's a supportive government. It's a small government.
1: Yeah. So this is like, and this is what I love about it, and why it's so accessible to everybody here. It's like, hey, these are the rules. There's a judge. That's, there's a judge that's going to assess you against those rules. There's a decoy who's going to act within those rules, and everybody's welcome to try. And you know, there's there's no concern over, you know, because. I think one of the the good things about PSA and why I'm so excited to get it going in Australia and invite more people into it is that people who really work the streets with their dogs, so have dogs that are actually dangerous and do bite people for real, are welcome to compete in PSA. Right on, right on. And that brings up this, like gives opportunity to the skill level. So, you know, I choose my words carefully, but a lot of the sport um, dog trainers, in my opinion, are better dog trainers. They're good at getting the best out of a dog. And then you get yeah. like people who work the streets of their dog, security guys and whatever, and they're good at doing that, but really maximizing the potential of the dog. They are not. They don't have the, the mentorship, the opportunity, the training time to do that. So by giving right. them a sport that they can compete in, now they've got access to all those sport competitors. They can join a club so jay mm-hmm. who got her level 1 she works security with a dog like so that dog mm-hmm. like it's a, it'll bite you for real right and so but yeah. like now she's got access to a sport where she can compete the dog is it's safe we're in suits the dog and the dog is safe anyway it's not an un- unstable dog it's social um mm-hmm. but it doesn't have I get what you
0: Yep. but the yep. great thing about psa in that aspect is it actually prepares the dog for being a better dog overall yeah better nerve to better control the whole system of it as far as You know, I mean, let's take away the competitive sport side of it, but talk about a working patrol person. I think the way that Jerry has actually developed it with his team and fundamentally himself and his team is that it is something that all working dog people should be aspiring to do regardless whether they do it as a sport or not. It's an absolutely fantastic environment for a working dog to be in.
1: You mean like the level of control? The level of
0: control. It's a real live working scenario for a working dog. That's right. Yeah, surprise scenarios, yeah. Yeah, Unbelievable.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's what's cool about it is that, you know, I think it's fair that – not that I'm against IPO. I mean, I'm always incredibly impressed by IPO, but I think it's fair that someone who works the streets with their dog would say, well, I don't want to condition my dog to these routines too much because – whatever he's going to face in real life I don't control I need I need him to be able to think on his feet I need a creative dog I need a dog that is a problem solver mm. and if I'm always mm. doing the same routine if I'm trying to get good points in this picture he needs to learn these pictures to get the points to be competitive mm. PSA is the opposite in that if you have a dog that's too highly in the routine, he will not do well in a surprise scenario where you, you truly have no idea what's coming. And so the dog really needs to know the commands. And the example I always use of that is outside of bite work, you know, I've seen a trial where in the obedience, the handler has to heel over a door that was on the floor, like just to, you know, taken off the hinges, or it might've been a table, I don't know, I couldn't see from the video, but you put the dog in a position in motion down onto the door, you go into a blind, mm. two decoys pick up the door, Start walking around with it, and now you do your wow. change now you do your changes of position right wow. so your dog wow. <laughs> yeah. and so your dog needs to know the changes of position right He doesn't he, like I think a lot of people right. in those routines could yell apples, oranges, bananas, and the dog will go through sit down stand right but in that in that scenario, the dog's really got to know it, and that 's totally Does that transfer to working the street? No, but where it does is that the dog is, he knows his job and he understands. I can read this scenario. Well, it does
0: because it's controlling. Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah, but it's not like you're ever going to need to do that specifically. Mm -hmm. That's where people argue oh, well, that's stupid. I'm never going to have to do that. But. Those neural pathways that are created in doing that is what you're definitely going to use, right? A dog that can read the situation and understand he must listen to his master no matter what. Mm. Sit down, stand, being carried around on a door by two bad guys. Like, no, no, yeah. no police or security dog is ever gonna to have to do that. Definitely not. But what he might have to do is if if you're gonna put your dog into a crawl space in a roof then maybe you and your partner have to put your dog onto a platform and lift him into that crawl space in the roof, right? And that's probably the sure. safest way to do it. So like all those things, the bizarre, you know, like so – you know, a SWAT team tactic with a dog to put a dog into a crawl space is to put the shield on the ground, put the dog in a down on the shield, if you know there's someone up there, and then you get four guys on the shield, and as quick as you can, like, pop that shield up into the crawl space, and the dog can deploy into there, and it's, it's the safest and and best way to deploy the dog into that crawl space. So. Yeah. If your dog knows how to down on things, be lifted, moved around, there's an application for that. And the only way you find that hole in your training is when someone says, okay, do this, and your dog just bites that. <laughs> because, because that might be, you know, again, transferring this over to real world stuff, that like a guy in his body armor and all of his assault gear looks a hell of a lot like a decoy. Mm. So he's mm. got to understand, no, I'm standing on this thing and I'm doing what my boss says. Despite what my urges tell me to do, I'm doing what I'm told. So anyway, I love the sport, man. I, I love it. Um, I, I want to push as deep into it as I can. keeps you thinking. It, it's, yeah.
0: It's a, it really keeps you thinking. It keeps your mind active because it's so different than, than following a, a set routine. And and again, that's not taking the piss out of anybody that's involved in any type of dog sport because both of us, and I know yourself as well because you've been involved in Mondio and French Ring and IPO and so forth, I can't tell you how wonderful I think it is that people are actually getting out there on the fields and working with their dogs and obtaining a, a title or, or even just trialing. doesn't matter if they get the title or not, but the fact that sure. they're actually getting out there.
1: I, I think the other thing I, I get like. It,
0: and I get what you guys are saying. Yeah, I get what yeah. you guys are saying.
1: And, it's it's, a, and no, you can give a career to a dog as well. Which that's is right. Like, yeah. it, unlike some sports where, you know, like say – I love KNPV, but you just do it the one time, right? That's mm. it, and then the dog he's got his certificate, and you don't. Mm-hmm. T- people tend not to trial a second time because you can lose your certificate in KNPV, right? Like if you don't pass the second time, he's no longer got his patch one. Yep. Um. So, mm. whereas in in Mondio in PSA, like you, a dog can compete till he's eight eight years old. You can just keep trying to get higher titles. You can keep trying to get higher points, and you can compete against people. It's not like um, you smash a dog through the program. He's finished. Off he goes. But start the dogs again. love
0: it. I mean, Randy just yeah. Randy was born to do PSA. He just loves Randy. it. Randy. Yeah, he loves it. He he's
1: matured, loves- man. Since you would have seen him, he's a different. He's a big boy now. He thinks he's yeah, a big cool. tough guy.
0: We had a session cool. um, last week, and he just I don't know. He he. It's two weeks since the trial. We sort of had to break ourselves from it. hadn't done much, and uh, he had a session with Pat, and he just came out like quite pumped yeah yeah he was and angry. uh yeah he was angry and <laughs> he was hurting pat which yeah. was quite exciting he feels like a big boy huh
1: yeah, yeah thinks he's a big boy now so yeah. your dogs I, I was surprised to hear you say that i always thought your dogs were from mike i thought that elza was from one of the loup dogs
2: yeah they are they're both uh, loup dogs oh they um, are okay but not bred yeah, by him donna, donna madey who bred them just had both the breeding pair had the breeding right. pair with her. So right. the mom and the dad, but Jackson, uh, the father was, um, from Mike, Mike sent it to Donna and then so was the, the mother uh, right. vodka. So, okay. Just one thing I was going to say on the, uh, the PSA. Um, I think you guys are the perfect fellows to kind of head that. And I think that if, uh, because you'll create the right culture around that sport there in Australia. And I think that hap- that matters a lot. Um, it seems to matter here, in terms of the number of people that choose to get involved in the sport and how long they stay participatory in it and if you can sort of, you know, create this culture that feels like, um, uh, to support our community, create the supportive community where you're interested in bringing good people in that are um, serious about their training, but also lighthearted and inviting to others and, um, you know, recognizing each person where they're at individually in their training and able to sort of reach them and encourage them from that point. I think that's a big deal. There's been um, – I think the sports that suffer participation over here are the ones that um, they, they – because of the people, people involved, maybe they seem to be um, exclusive in nature um, or it's, it's hard to go in and make friends right away because um, they're a bit clicky in some senses. Mm-hmm. So to breed this culture that's really inviting and open to people, I think that's the way to, to get it going. And you guys seem – you're perfect for that, I feel like. So I think yeah, it's I'm
0: trying. The, well, the whole, the whole concept of working with animals is bigger than you. And, you know, I think that's, that's a good message for anybody. Certainly a hard one I've had to suck up in, in past times is that it's, it's not about you. It's about the community and it's about paying it forward that other people need to learn it to carry it on. There's plenty of things you guys would have experienced it yourself, Pat, would have, you would have, Forrest, that if you meet somebody who just blockades you on knowledge... They take it with them and it's it's lost forever. You know, I mean, yeah. rather than have it scribed in the archives that people can actually have obtained that information and, and pay it forward to somebody else. You know, other people, younger people are gonna be the future. And and it might you might not be best friends. You might not have the most wonderful relationship with them, but that's something that you've got to work out in yourself as well. Something that you've yeah. got to get through and get past. And sometimes, you know, it's a it's a little bit of compromise. You don't have to make it such a personal thing. And I think this is one of the things that a lot of clubs do is they make it very personal. Like you said before, they make they turn it into a click and they create this exclusivity where they stop people being able to access it, which is kinda kinda stupid. It's not kinda yeah. stupid, it's largely stupid. It's just not it's not creating any survivability in it. Yeah, that's right.
1: That's right. I'm really opposed to the, like, famine mindset in, in really anything, you know what I mean? Like, having, like, no, this is my special sauce, stay away. Like, it, it's just counterproductive in, in a lot of ways. That's why we do this and we give away heaps of information on this. And I don't think it, it doesn't it, – people are not going to not employ you because you gave too much. You know what I mean? They're, they're only more likely to employ you because of how much you gave because you can never give everything. You, it's impossible. You, even when people are paying you, you can't pass on everything you know. So there's always yes. more. People always want to get more and then you, you, it's, you're you free to give away as much as you can and should and feel like you, you, you're you willing to because the more you – I find the more you give, the more you get given. And, 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 yeah. and by that I mean in work. Like the more yeah. – you, you know, we talk about – some really specific things that, say, I do in training we've we've done podcasts on and explain it in as much detail as you can in an hour of podcast. But then I get work from that. People want to pay me to find out more and have it re-explained to them. And so I just think that the more you give, it all just comes back around. That's not like ethereal. I'm not being trying to, you know, like – I don't want to hug trees and talk woo woo, but it's just the, age there, Pat. Yeah. you age their But it's just the truth. That you Patru-
2: just... is that patchouli I smell? Like?
1: <laughs> you just can't give away too much. I, I feel like <laughs> we need to screen capture. That I know, we so that... need to be capturing that somehow.
0: <laughs> it that. was kind of like an Ace Ventura kind of laugh.
2: Yeah, it's going for a man. Um, Live yeah. here, in East, uh, Ashland, Oregon, and there's a lot of patchouli in Ash- Ashland, Oregon.
0: Yeah, right. There you go.
2: Shout nice. out to Ashland.
0: <laughs> hey, I, um, I'm I'm not totally holistic about it either. I mean, even though I've just made that comment before, there are some people that shouldn't be in it, and there there are some people that should be kept away from the sports. And the-
1: yeah, well, I, I think that there's people that I don't want to be around, but I think it's important to allow people to turn up and make a fool of themselves. Like I think that it's important that people like the on the trial field. If you want to if you want to rock up wanna- and make an idiot of yourself, you're welcome to do it because. Um, it's not our job to tell you because of who you are in your personal life that you can't.
0: No, no, no. Go in the not. field. Uh, you're right. I 100 percent agree with that. It's but there's people I
1: don't want to train with, and I don't have to. But yeah,
0: if, agreed. Yeah.
1: Oh dear, we could talk about that forever. Mm. Hey, so the seminar forest. What's the? Are there still dog spots available, Glenn?
0: Not many. Okay, so there's a couple. There are well, people, There are, like every seminar that we have, there are people waiting for the last minute to book tickets. Yeah, yeah. Which is the case every t- single time and then it will be a frantic bum rush and then there'll be people on the very day before the seminar saying, oh, there's still tickets left, there's still tickets left. So if you are um, contemplating on coming to the seminar, please don't wait to the last minute because I would hate to tell you that we're full. It's nice to have a big room of people, but it's also nice to make sure that we've got a comfortable space as well. So we will be, as we always do, we always cut off ticket numbers at a certain level because There's trying cap, to, there has to be there has to be a cap. So we're not trying to cram people into the in, into the area. What we're trying to do is is run like we always do a quality show with two A-list guys coming down to to run the seminar. So if you haven't already got on, get on it. That's that's my takeaway message.
1: And so, Forrest, what's your dream working spot? A dog comes out of the car or you're having a talk with the person beforehand and they say, this is what I want to work on my dog. What's the thing you're going to hear that makes you the happiest?
2: (laughs) My dog loves me, loves to work, is is happy and healthy, and I'm just looking for a few pointers to tighten some things up. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Is that what you're kind of looking for an answer like that?
1: (laughs) And
2: (laughs) and, and in what area? In obedience? Stable as can be. And loves to bite and smell and doesn't do anything wrong. And all I want to do is make perfect healing. I'm like, cool. <laughs> so you are
1: somewhat of a, a healing master. That's kind of the sort of thing that people could potentially work on. Um, you'll bring in your bite suit, uh, right? So you'll be catching some bites, people who are competitive sports.
0: Get ready for Randy.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. So just to back it up. Yeah. I I mean, I do a lot of healing work uh, like in the States and when I go on seminar, but um, you know, that's just a piece of it. And healing is just a fun, complex behavior that I've enjoyed making. So it's helpful for people. But for the seminar, if we're talking about what we're going to do there, this is kind of a different layout than I've ever done before, because I'll be Josh and Josh and I'll be presenting um, Mm -hmm. together, or switching Mm -hmm. off. And we thought that would be kind of neat because we have different areas that we've focused on in the last, you know, five to 10 years each other individually so he's i've learned a lot from josh he probably would say the same for me we click really well we have a neat friendship so we thought it would be fun to come over to australia and present together specifically what i'm presenting on i'll save until we actually um, get there and i think there was a write-up that glenn probably presented or some of the topics but uh, they always take on a little bit of a life of their own to the time together depending on how the dogs show up so that'll be good yeah but there's going to be a problem-solving portion of it, so that's kind of you know where are you at and where would you like to be, uh, and then there's some specific um, concepts that I'll be I will be detailing about um, that I just find are most useful right now or when I'm going around uh, and teaching or working with people I've I've noticed some general concepts that I think are misunderstood or just aren't out there and available enough yet to people that I think are really important so a lot of that time will be spent laying those things out. And of course we've got one day that we're going to do some bite work, which is cool because the last time I was there, I think it maybe it was with the insurance. We we couldn't really do it on the property because we didn't plan for it. And I think this time we did. So
1: yeah, I think that was the case. Yeah, we,
0: we, yeah we've, up, we've updated our insurance and our insurance does cover, it does cover the sport side of things. So yeah. because we're officially running a sport here now and we're not training like just your average Joe how to go out and teach their dogs to, to bite people, we're actually a legitimate sporting dog club. So that's the angle that, that the insurance company is happy with.
2: Got it. So, so yep, I'm bringing the suit and uh, I mean – you guys, I think you probably know me. I just like to have a good time and for people to enjoy themselves, for some good information to get out there and hopefully um, that folks leave with a smile on their face and with a desire to put a little bit more work in um, and also to feel empowered to do more um, on their own, which I think is important. Um, you know, I, I was, I saw Bart a couple of years ago in Virginia and he said, the way that he said it is he said, the fuck around time with your dog is really important mm-hmm. right? and that's exactly how he said it. He's like, you got to fuck around with your dog and mm-hmm. I can't do his ex. But, and I just thought that's been the most important thing to me as an individual developing, both just my relationship with, you know, this, this other species, this different animal, but also all the neat things that I'm trying to train him to do is just spending time goofing around and making mistakes and, and working through it. And if you have, if you give yourself permission to kind of sit in that place and do it and you put the time in, you can't, that, that's really priceless. That's more than anything you could almost do in terms of going to a seminar and taking in information or having somebody constantly telling you what to do because you'll never get that same sort of qualitative aspect to your work mm-hmm. as if you're just putting the time in and goofing off. And I see that a lot in the States now that training information is everywhere and uh, people are you know, we're, we're putting a lot of information out. It's You can access it really easily. More people are getting involved in training um, and you want to do a good job. You know, you're seeing – all this, these beautiful um, pictures of humans and their dogs out there and you want to match that and, and you don't want to, you know, do the wrong thing. So you're uber careful and you're almost afraid to, to just sit and goof off with your dog and try things. And I think that that um, is so important that you're open to that and courageous enough to just dig in and say, I don't care. I'm just going to see how this goes. And of course, you know, there's there's be mindful if you're using certain tools or something that, um, you you do want to have some good information and some good mentoring or instruction behind, but it's worth it to just sit and play around. There's not much that can be lost and there's everything that can be gained from that. So that's one of the bigger things I'm telling, you know, folks now is, or even asking them is how much time do you spend on your own? Like, how much do you care about this on your own? How obsessed with this? Are you by yourself when you're with your dog, just tinkering around? If they're always waiting for somebody to to work with, it's, they're never going to get you know, where they could. I think.
0: That's pretty sage advice. Mm. That's the best place to wrap it up.
1: <laughs> Let's leave on that. That's Yeah. Perfect. yeah that's a, I agree with that a hundred percent. I want that to resonate with people. So Forrest, thank you very, very much for uh, clearing some time for us and coming on the show. It's, it's been great to talk to you, man.
2: Yeah, man. I appreciate you guys. And um, yeah, just in a closing thing, if, you know, folks are listening and they're wondering what, whether they should come out and attend the seminar or not, um, if you just, if you want to be more involved with dogs and know the, know the people in your country that are doing it too, and and be around some really, really good trainers. Like, I mean, you guys have been doing it a long time. Um, Glenn is just a huge source of information and such a generous guy in terms of opening up his business and making it, you know, it available for guys like us to come in and teach. It's a really neat thing. So uh, it's that those three days are going to be a good time. We're really laid back Uh, guys. We just like to enjoy what we're doing and um, hopefully do right by the dogs. So, yeah. yeah, if anybody else, the fence man, just come. It'll be a good time.
1: If nothing else, going to be a bunch of cool people in a room for three days, having a good time.
0: And uh, I think we're going to do a, <laughs> a a live podcast where you and Josh are here. We're going to do a panel with uh, you, me, Pat, and Josh, and just in the oh. in the training studio and with the guys that want to hang around, drink some beers, have a pizza, and uh, just make it a good casual night to share some information.
2: Cool, man. I appreciate that. That'll be good. Yeah, no, that'll be.
0: It was. We did it with Chad and Jay when they were here, and we had a great time with it. It was It was a really fun night, and everybody really got into it. So hopefully, uh, you'll enjoy it as much as well. We will get ready for some beers too, because you know Josh is a mad beer nerd, and uh, (laughs) he's he's already hitting us up for. Pat's got this like dodgy place in Leichhardt where he lives, where you just walk in and the floor and the ceiling are about to fall in on top of you. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, it's going to be awesome. I'm just trying to figure out when that where we're going to do that. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, we'll 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 find time. Got to find time to have some fun.
1: Boris, thank you very much again. That's it for another episode of the K9 Paradigm. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please jump onto whatever subscription service you download us from. Like, rate, share, subscribe, tell a friend, all those things. And that helps us get out get the message out there to more people who might be interested in what we have to say. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via our Facebook page. We are the K9 Paradigm on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram as well. We are the K9 Paradigm there. That's it. Glenn, cue the music.